Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Your host, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the show. Today's show. And it's, I am dressed in a suit. You are. You're dressing up for the show. I am. I, I think it's a time I brought an element of class to the programme. So today I am wearing a full suit. Uh, I've took my tie off, though. Well, that's so it's, lowered the level. It's more, it's more of a level of casual sophistication in which I look in the mirror and I go, Comics. Hey, kids, comics. You know, that works. It works. That's totally worked, it didn't is, it? Doesn't it? Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the conclusion of our Silver Age stuff. It's sad that I couldn't think of a better word than stuff, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's very, very sad indeed. Uh, have we got anything this week? I don't know. We got anything this week, have we? No. Yeah. Spider Man 2 trailer happened. It did. Looks pretty okay, doesn't it? Looks good. Looks alright, yeah. Electro's blue. Yeah. Electro blue. <laughs> Yes. Anyway, <clears throat> instead of yellow and green. Yeah, instead of that lovely that lovely costume that I think would work perfectly in live action. I like the yellow and green costume. <laughs> I don't dislike it. I just I don't, know, I don't think it looks. It's better than boring old yeah. naked blue. They've cast Wonder Woman for the Man of Steel sequel, which is no longer a Man of Steel sequel, but is actually a stealth Justice League movie. Ah, that's what I suspect. All right. Now that Batman's in it, Wonder Woman's in it. How long before the Flash and Green Arrow show up from the TV shows? Unless they do Trinity. Unless they do Trinita, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that actually may be quite cool if they do Trinita. Yeah. That'd be quite good. Oh, It'll yeah. be a zig where you thought it was that. Yes, well, she, you know, she may only be... If somebody had said to you, right, when Thor 1 was announced, mm-hmm. that it's going to be a Thor and Hawkeye movie, because Hawkeye's <laughs> in it, and everyone would have gone, well, are they going to have time to do a Thor origin and a Hawkeye origin in the same film? And then it turns out Hawkeye was in one scene. So maybe Wonder Woman's only in it for like... Well, that's what I'm saying. Before you go into Meltdown... Yeah. Let's, let's, she may not even be Wonder Woman in the film. She may only be on Paradise Island. Yeah. And there may be a little teaser scene leading into... A Wonder Woman film. A Wonder Woman or a Justice League movie or whatever. So. I quite like the idea of Wonder Woman being in it, to be honest with you. I'd rather Wonder Woman was in it than Batman. I think that would be much more interesting a Superman Wonder Woman film. Hmm. That would be quite cool. Anyway, should we, should we check some emails since we only got two done last week? Yes. Because we, we ended up chatting about other things. Godzilla vs. Cthulhu. Godzilla vs. Cthulhu. I don't think we talked about that one, did we? No. I don't think we did Godzilla vs. Cthulhu, no. Uh, Kyle Benning. Hello, Kyle. Says, greetings, Andy and Michael. Kyle has emailed in. His subject heading is, <laughs> Hey Kids Comics Issue 150 Feedback. Well, of course he's emailed him. So yes, if you, if you rearrange the stuff <laughs> I just said in your head, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I can fix it in post. If you could only fix your life in post. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kyle says, I only recently discovered your podcast on Two True Freaks. See, I told you paying all those ladyboys money would, would aid us in our <laughs> upload numbers, didn't I? Download numbers, whatever it's called. And I've really been digging your podcast so far. I just finished episode 44. 
Which was episode 44. Uh, one we did over 110 yeah. episodes. Oh, right, no. I loved your story about hunting down Marvel Tales issues when you were 10 or 11, right. So it must mean episode 40... No, it can't be. Was that episode 44 since we started on Two Tree Freaks? No, it can't be because we've been there a year. I am confused by the numbering of episodes, <laughs> but I'm not very good with numbers. No, you're not. I'm like the inverse of Joey Essex. <laughs> yeah, I'm dead good with numbers, I'm dead good with numbers, me, but I don't know what submerge means. <laughs> that was a great story, continues Kyle, and I've always found stories about the hunt of memorable issues to be really enjoyable, especially your over in the UK. It's really interesting to hear how different things were over there for finding comics. I don't know if you've heard or gotten a chance to read the book that shares the same name as your podcast, Hey Kids Comics, arranged by Rob Kelly of the Aquaman Shrine, and the Fire and Water podcast, and featuring stories about finding comics from a number of fans and creators. I'd love to see your comics origin story or this little tale make it into subsequent editions of this book, if he ends up publishing any sequels. Well, as we said to Luke Giaconetti last week, from your mouth to Rob Kelly's ears. Because I would love to type that up mm-hmm. for, for his, his sequel to Hey Kids Comics, which I would imagine would be called something like, oh, I don't know, off the top of my head, Hey Kids Comics 2. Or Hey Kids More Comics. Yay, that's better. <laughs> I like that. That's very good. Kyle continues, I share your sentiment on digital comics are going about finding old stories. I myself do not like the digital format, legal or otherwise, as I don't like reading that way off a computer or tablet, and I will always prefer reading and holding the hard copy original issues in my hand. One cannot deny the collectability of comics as part of the hobby, and for me, hard copies will always win out over digital files or CD compilations. This is especially true for older issues. I love the newsprint, advertisement and letters columns. These all serve as a piece of pop culture and history, and it's great rereading old issues and taking what back down memory lane. This works on an even larger level for the Golden Age and Silver Age issues. I have coverless copies of Action Comics 73 and 75, and the ads are great pieces of art in and of themselves. I don't disagree with that, because I, like, like you Kyle, I prefer the actual issues. But, there is something about being able to read it on a tablet, which means you can blitz through them easier. Yeah. Can't you? But also, it does have the advantage, if I want to read some comics and your mum has fallen asleep, mm-hmm. I can read them, and I don't have to have a light on. Yeah. Which disturbs her. So, it means I can... So, there are pros and cons to both. It helps with travelling as well. Yeah. I read all the Shea the Changing Man when we went to Florida through a tablet. Yeah, because it's easy to carry that than 78 issues of a comic book, or yeah. the graphic novel equivalent, or whatever. So, there are pros and cons. I do like... Do Marvel still do this? Give away free digital downloads with the comics. I yeah. like that idea. Yeah. Because you've bought the physical comic and you're getting the digital one for free. So I, I like that. I think that's a good idea because then you've got both and you can do what you want with them. Kyle continues, I love your old G.I. Joe PSAs. Well, they weren't ours. We just, we just mocked them. I inherited a pretty large comic collection from my dad's brother who died when I was very young, which included gems like most of Burns' Fantastic Four runs, Albusema's run on the Hulk, DC's Who's Who, Superman and Action Comics, and the entire first 75 issues of Marvel's G.I. Joe series and the Special Mission series, as well as most of a toy collection and the old Transformers cartoon on VHS tapes. These old tapes were loaded with G.I. Joe PSAs, and hearing them brings back many fine memories. The American Marvel Transformers comic got infinitely better when they were able to pull Simon Furman over from the UK branch and got him writing the US comic. Furman did some incredible things on the Marvel UK Transformers property, and I've enjoyed reading the Titan oversized collections. Andy, did you ever happen to read the Marvel UK Transformers series when it was coming out? I'd love to hear your coverage of it, and if you have covered it, please point me to what episode I can find it. I have read very little Transformers. However, Mm -hmm. as with G.I. Joe, 
if there are a number of Transformers out there who want to do what J. David Weiss. <laughs> there are a number of Transformers out there. And Luke Jowell, there's lots of Transformers fans. I'm Optimus Prime. Would you please come my favourite issue? <laughs> if, like we did with G.I. Joe, if there are a couple of fans out there who want to recommend and possibly provide us with, because we have no Transformers comics, copies of two. How many issues of G.I. Joe did we do? Two? Three. Did we do three? Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, we did issue one, didn't we? But that was off our own back. Mm-hmm. If you want to send us the ones that you recommend as the best, we will do a Transformers show, much in the vein that we did the G.I. Joe show. Because the G.I. Joe one worked out really well, and people seem to like it, even though we knew nothing about G.I. Joe. So, we, w- we, we would do the same with Transformers, if you want to recommend us some issues. Kyle continues, have you read Frank Miller's Holy Terror graphic novel? I have not. Have I have you? not. Okay. It was originally supposed to be a Batman story, but DC and Frank parted directions and Miller released it on his own. It is very clearly Batman and Catwoman and reads that way. It's not Frank's finest art performance, but I still enjoyed it for what it is. I would say it's better than Dark Knight Strikes Again. It's definitely a Sin City approach to a Batman-type character. Just curious if either of you had read it before and your thoughts. I have never read Holy Terror. I knew that it was originally a Batman tale. Uh, yeah, because it wasn't originally called Holy Terror Batman. Batman yeah. And it was part of his Batverse. Yeah, part of his the Miller Batverse that includes All Star Batman that he never bothered finishing. Yeah, and Bat Dark Knight's Bat Bat Knight Strikes Again. <laughs> Dark Knight Strikes Again, where Dick Grayson can take his head off yeah. and it can operate independently of his body. So Miller's Batman universe is a little bit weird. A little bit weird. A little bit but weird. I, I'm pretty sure that it, it's very heavily based on terrorism, and DC weren't comfortable with it because of something that had gone on at the time. I can't imagine why DC would be uncomfortable with that. No, no. Mm. Um, Kyle continues, he shows Mike's sentiments. That would be you. Thank you very much. Spider-Man and his amazing friends are rather unamazing when teamed up together. (laughs) The fact that their powers defeat each other with fire-thawing ice and melted ice putting out fire about the only situation they could work together and achieve anything would be if they were trying to break metal by superheating it and supercooling it repeatedly until they could fracture it. Other than that, they'd be quite useless teaming up to stop the same threat. Look, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, he's (laughs) all Awesome. And I will have no words on the matter. We have an email coming up soon yes, that defends do. Amazing Friends magnificently. You guys have a great podcast. Well, thank you very much, Kyle. It's hilarious, fun, and packed with tons of great information and old stories. I look forward to hearing future and past episodes. Congratulations on 150. It's my first episode and won't be my, my last. Kyle Benning, Waverly, Iowa, USA. No, I'm from Iowa. I'm just working out of space. Kyle, yeah. you're working out of space because that would be awesome. You're very welcome, Carl. Thank you for checking out the show, and we're glad you enjoyed it. Our next email is Ian McGregor. I presume he's no relation to Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ewan McGregor. It's called Eye Patches and Acronyms. Andrew and Michael. Oh, that's his full name. Ian, yeah. <laughs> Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Ewan. Ewan McGregor is now his official name. <laughs> he had it changed on his passports and everything after he did Star Wars. Hello, Andrew and Michael, says Ian. Hello, Ian, says Andrew and Michael. In your last episode, Andrew mentioned Nick Fury's mysterious appearing and disappearing eye patch. In later issues of Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos, it was revealed that Fury's eye was injured due to a grenade explosion. Fury had the choice of sitting out the war and saving his eye or continuing to fight, losing the eye and eventually getting an eye patch. Ever the patriot, he chose the latter. Now, because of his FF appearance, I would no prize it that his eye only failed after that FF issue, which caused him to gain the eye patch in time for Strange Tales 135, which is an awesome no prize explanation. Mm-hmm. What do you you, sir. 
Yes. I would I would go with that. I, that's perfectly acceptable. Is yeah. I only packed in after Fantastic Four, but before Strange Tales 135. You know what we should start doing? What? Sending out empty envelopes with our, 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 uh, our emblem. Yes. Well, first of all, we need to create <laughs> We need emblem. to create an emblem. Yes. Oh, but then we could merchandise that crap out of that, couldn't we? we A Hey Kids Comics logo. But let's see, we'd be confusing it with, with Rob's book. Uh, We'd have to split the money. Hey, Kids Comics podcast. The podcast. Yes. Yeah. Okay. See, see, Fantastic Cast already has merchandise. We yes, we have t-shirts and mugs, we, and yeah. they're excellent. And you've not been around longer, and yet you have more merchandise. Oh, well, you come up with a t-shirt design, and we will get them printed. All right. Okay. When talking about S.H.I.E.L.D., Ian continues, Andrew mentioned that the acronym originally meant Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division. However, in 1991, it was changed to Strategic Hazard Intervention Espionage Logistics Directorate. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it stands for Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division, which I would not put Marvel changing into the new acronym for the comic. I'm looking at you, Nick Fury Jr. What do you think about the new acronyms? Are they better, or should Stan's version never have been changed? Best, Ian McGregor. I like the simplicity of the original. They are a supreme headquarters, they deal with international espionage, and they deal with law enforcement. What's wrong with that? I think the second one from the 90s is too long-winded and tedious. Yeah. And I think the new one, just by having the word homeland in it, Homeland Security is going to date it in future years and they'll end up changing it again. Yeah. Is my thinking. So I don't think there's anything wrong with Stan's original one. What do you think? I'm, I'm not bothered either way. Do you not care? It's, it's still S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, that's true. I suppose so. That makes no difference. All right, yeah, fair enough. I prefer the original. Michael doesn't have an opinion. Uh, thank you, Ian. Thank you very much for emailing in. We're glad you did so. Spencer Thompson emailed in. It's just called 150, which is awesome. Is I like it? that. Uh, it's like the prequel to the 300 graphic novel. Alright. <laughs> Hi, bros. Hey, Hawkeye! <laughs> awesome. Hey, Spencer. Just listened to your anniversary show. Congratulations on reaching 150. Quite a feat. Enjoyed the origin story. Do you not think Mr. Tickle is basically an all ages version of Mr. Fantastic? <laughs> than you, Andrew, and turned 10 in the mid-90s. I think that makes you considerably younger than me, given that I was in my 20s in the mid-90s. Which meant that the first US comics I encountered were a bit unforgiving. The first stuff I read was some tie-ins to the Age of Apocalypse X-Men storyline. I had no clue what was going on, and it turned me off comics from the big two. What got me in was a digest of the first two issues of Joe Madeira's, is that how you pronounce that? Battle Chasers, which I picked up on my first trip to a comic shop. Here was something not tied to any continuity other than its own short run, and was a badass combination of Lord of the Rings and anime stylings. I didn't read any big two until I was at university, reading instead stuff like Invincible and Godland. I've never read Godland. Have no. you read that? No. My question is this. What do you think is the best superhero stuff to recommend to new, and a new young reader? Regular continuity miniseries and elseworlds or creator-owned work from other publishers? I would argue you could probably just give them Invincible Compendium 1. It's all uh, Interested to hear your thoughts. Um, I, Invincible... I, I would give a young reader Invincible. I was going to say that. It depends on the age. I'd give a teenager Invincible. Yeah. I don't know that I'd give it to someone who's like 9 or 10. So you wouldn't let your child who's in primary school read it? I would not let my child who's in primary school read Invincible, no. Or The Walking Dead. <laughs> or Preacher. Well, I had to wait till I was 12 to read Walking Dead and 14. By which Preacher. point you were in high school. But See? Invincible, I was reading in primary school. Shut up! 
that's what makes me feel really old growing up with Invincible. So why then would you not say that was suitable? Um, I was if twist- you read it. Because I was twisted from the start. <laughs> and then long ago I realised there's no point here. There's, there's not even possibility of him turning out okay. Let's move on. Uh, yeah, Invincible, I think, is, is, is a good one if they're slightly older. Um, I'd give um, Marvel a DC. If he's a young reader, Batman or Spider-Man, they're happy. Yeah, but which Batman or Spider-Man? I mean, for younger kids, I'd have to go to Ditko. And Batman, I would go to the Neil Adams stuff. Right. So there is graphic novel collections of Neil Adams' Batman stuff. Oh, actually, you know what? For Batman, Strange Apparitions, the trade paperback. Okay. Which is Marshall Rogers' stuff. Batman in the 50s. No, not Batman in the 50s. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, you know... For the most part, I would go with that. For Batman, I'd give them Batman in the 70s and Batman in the 80s. Superman, I would give them all of them. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, because they're awesome fun. Spider-Man, the first essential volume of Lee Ditko's run. Mm. And see how that went down. That's that's what I'd go with. Batman in the 50s would spark inspiration. Would it really? It would. Excellent. Good. Okay. One other thing. Stop teasing us with Jeff Johnsy's Flash run. Do a show already. It's truly fantastic and maybe his best work. I've got to be on Spencer. I've got to be honest, I should say, Spencer. I read that deliberately to be reading something that I wasn't covering for a show. Yeah. One of the things I think I said in 150 was you do occasionally think you're only ever reading something to cover on a show. And I went back to my Jeff Johns reading of The Flash, which I had all of them but I've never read, for the sole purpose of reading something for enjoyment. Hmm. So I never had any intention of covering any of that stuff on the show. So, I mean, I may change my mind, you never know, but if Michael goes to university this year, we're on the home stretch now, dude. Yeah. So I think the next six or seven months, we're just looking at covering stuff we really, really want to cover, because this could be the beginning of the end. Oh, we'll, we'll do specials. <laughs> the Bride of Her Kids comic. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a DC fan, continues Spencer, but I have a soft spot for The Flash because of the nature of his powers. Flash stories are almost always visually experimental and interesting. I'm currently making my way through Mark Way's run digitally. So far, ten issues, it's been hit and miss, although the first four issues told a very nice Wally West origin, and I would recommend if you haven't read it. We've covered it! No, no, we didn't cover that. Did we? No, but it is very good. We covered the return of Barry Allen. Go back and find that one, Spencer. It was a great, great, great run. I also think the new 52 Flash stuff is very solid and a bit underrated. Stay safe and keep up the good work, Spencer Thompson. Well, you're very welcome, Spencer. Thank you for joining in. Uh, we'll squeeze one more in, seeing as we got interrupted in recording, so I have no idea where we're up to in terms of time. But what would a show be without an email from Luke Giaconetti? This wouldn't be a show. It, it wouldn't. Quite frankly. We've had other emails and the rest of the show on our part, but... <laughs> but it's just not a show no, no. without an email from Luke. He's a two-fisted man of two-fisted action in two different two-fisted eras. By Jove, you jolly old blighters. I do like that intro. It's very good. Nick Fury. What else can I say? Other than I always like playing as Nick in the Punisher arcade video game using the Player 2 slot, which worked out as my brother was the Punisher fan, so no arguments. I finally picked up the essential Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos a little while back. 
I flicked through it, but not really dug into the boot yet. But I am chomping at the bit to do so. I'm a mark for Dick Ayer's Sergeant Fury work, and from what I've seen, it looks great in black and white. The melodramatic aspects of the Sergeant Fury story you guys covered are demonstrative of the Marvel method of war book, from what I've read, which has its own strengths. The Howler's adventures have always had a different feel to me than the war books from DC and Charlton of the same era. Not bad, just different and more than enjoyable, for sure. This is one of the Marvel books which most fans forget about from the era, but I can definitely see how it fits in with Marvel's lineup for the time. I'm reminded of a story from Heroes College, Charlotte, North Carolina, a few years back. As my friends and I were in line waiting to come in, a guy came up to us with a t-shirt with vintage headshots and lots of Silver Age Marvel heroes. He couldn't identify one of them and said that no one he asked knew who it was, and could we help? I took one look at it and said, that's Nick Fury. He said, no it's not, he's got two eyes. And I said, nah, it's Sergeant Fury from World War II. Huey's face lighting up with recognition. Of course! Sergeant Fury, soldier of the end, doing his job and then being forgotten. Regarding everyone talking in stereotypical British talk, I'm right there with you, son. Because don't you know that all Southerners all talk like refugees from gone with the wind, you reckon? Butter my biscuits and call me Susan. I reckon I can't go a single day without spouting something like I'm more nervous than a pussycat in a room full of rocking chairs. Or calling people sugar, or honey, or sweetie. Dag nab it all. Just mash the button and move on. Shazam! That was a truly awful southern accent. <laughs> I have read little of this Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff. I need to get hold of more Steranko stuff and just sit back and breathe in the 60s. I have one Steranko S.H.I.E.L.D. trade, but it's got some awful colouring in it, which just distracts more than anything. Would much prefer it being black and white than poorly coloured, but that's just me. Steranko's mod layouts and pencils still shine, even with lousy printing. Well... Under the heading of Marvel really should pay us for this, they have just released a Steranko Shield Complete Collection, which is all of the Strange Tales stuff and all of his run on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I know I'm tempted to pick it up. As far as female intuition as a superpower goes, Michael has stumbled onto the secret. Watch out, brother, the howling Femandos. <laughs> Infamandos, that's good. We'll be gunning for you now, and their intuition means they can predict your every move. Thanks again for the show, fellas, Luke. P.S. Loved the 007 music. Great choice. You're very welcome. Personally, my favourite part of that show was the intro. Uh, it was. I did a whole air team riff. Uh, that was did you hear it? In 1942, a crack commando unit, would, and whatever I said, I forgot. Anyway, we'll call it a day, though, with the emails. Take a quick break, and be right back. This is the All Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... Alright, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen! Alright, let's just keep this simple. Hello everybody, my name is Tom Harris and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. And we'll see you there. And we're back with our fourth and final look at the Silver Age of Comics. A journey that has taken us from the staid, far-out 50s to the early days of the flower power generation. But in many ways, we've saved the best 
till last. The last son of Krypton versus the wall-crawling webhead. Now, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. But Andrew, you're thinking, Spider-Man is your favourite character. How is this going to be an even match-up? Well, I'm glad you asked that, lovely listener. First of all, I like to think you'd give me more credit than that. If a Spider-Man story stinks, I, I think we'd say so, wouldn't we? Yeah. But second, and far more importantly, there isn't really a sliver of daylight between the two characters. Yes, if I had to pick, I would say Spider-Man is my favourite. But I enjoy Superman's adventures just as much, but in a different way. Unlike Spider-Man, I can enjoy all eras of Superman. Unlike my other favourites, Batman and the Hulk, where I like the characters, but are really only specific versions. With Superman and Spider-Man, I can read any year, any comic, and appreciate what they were trying to do. Even the New 52 has the adventures of Superman and Injustice Gods amongst men digital comics. However, I'm being disingenuous in making this a versus situation that was largely just a little bit of fun. This isn't about which character is better, this is about the stories and the companies producing those stories. Is the Silver Age really deserving of its tag as being silly and superficial? is the real question. So it seemed fitting that in the last part of this mini exploration of that much maligned Silver Age era that we should turn to the men in red and blue. With that in mind again, I set certain arbitrary rules, because I seem to like setting arbitrary rules for myself that make my life awkward. For Superman, it had to be a fairly representative story of the age, but not one we'd covered for the Happy Birthday Superman series. This meant, as with Batman last week, that two stories would be picked. One featuring Superman, and one featuring the start of the Superman family, Supergirl. As we mentioned back in Happy Birthday Superman Part 2 and 3, the Superman of the Silver Age was a very different beast to the Superman of the 40s and early 50s. By and large, the crusading champion of the people, who had little regard for rules and even less for rule breakers, was gone, as was the element of surprise the character had. Superman the Silver Age, while still representing the American way, was a citizen of the world. Everybody knew who he was. He palled around with presidents, was best chums with Batman, and all of a sudden had his own nuclear family. Superman's Silver Age is retroactively said to have begun with Action Comics issue 241 from June 1958, putting the stories we have picked today from well within that era, with two short stories that show how the Superman strip had grown since its first appearance and the era's predilection for imaginary tales. He was also, far and away, the company's flagship character, earning far more money from his comics and merchandising than any other of their characters, a position he held on to for a considerable time. First up, then, is Action Comics issue 266, cover dated July 1960, and we'll be looking at the backup strip, The World's Mightiest Cat, a Supergirl story. The cover uses this story as its basis and was drawn by Kurt Swan and Stan Kay. It shows Superman and Supergirl frolicking with Streaky the Supercat and Crypto the Superdog and asks which team is mightier. It's a bit plain, to be honest, especially compared to other covers of the era. What do you think of it, Michael? It's a bit boring. It's a bit plain, isn't it? It looks like the first Supergirl... um cover. But not as good. The first Supergirl cover had at least her popping out of a rocket and going, hi, I'm Supergirl and Superman going, egad, there is a girl in my costume. No, it looks exactly the same. Supergirl looks like she's flying on saying, hi, I'm Supergirl and Superman looks like he's going, egad, a girl in my costume. (laughs) 
Yeah, I suppose the facial expressions do give that impression. Streaky is huge in proportion to everyone else. Streaky's closer to us, dude. He looks like he's on the same level. He does, he does. But I suppose they're emphasising the fact that this is a Streaky the Supercat story. So let's make him... Yeah, so let's make him the the prominent figure on the cover while still having Superman and Supergirl. Um, Continuity mavens will note that Supergirl is still wearing a blue skirt rather than the more popular red one that will be popularised in the movie. The story was written by Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel and had art by Jim Mooney. Residents at the Midvale Orphanage, including Linda, Supergirl Lee and her friend Paul Dexter, are being entertained by super feats performed by Superman and his dog, Crypto. After the show, Superman gives out some souvenir capes to the children and Paul places his around the neck of Linda's pet cat, Streaky. Alas, the simple idea of get cape, work cape, fly does not pan out as Paul hoped and he leaves despondent, but later Streaky happens across a marble of ex-Kryptonite created earlier by Supergirl in an effort to rid the problem of Kryptonite from Superman's life and it transforms him into a super cat. A bird may not be showing off when it flies, but when a cat does it, it's certainly showing off and Streaky zooms over to Paul's dorm. Paul immediately calls his friends, but the exposure to ex-Kryptonite wears off quickly and Streaky is normal again. However, Streaky takes another whiff of ex-Kryptonite and starts biting through lamps. And when she is not electrocuted, Paul again rushes off to tell his friends. Linda, fearing that Streaky will somehow give away a secret, switches to Supergirl and repairs the lamp, thus making Paul out to be a lying fool in front of his friends. Streaky feels guilty, although Supergirl doesn't, and Streaky flies off to uproot a tree and carry it across town to Paul. But again, Supergirl intercepts before Paul can show his friends and replants the tree. On the way back, however, Streaky destroys a space probe missile and Supergirl scalds her and she buggers off to play with Paul, which leaves Supergirl with the dilemma of how to get Streaky without being seen. Supergirl uses a wind-up mouse and when Streaky runs after it, she takes her high into the sky where they spot an African jungle being attacked by gorillas, elephants, panthers and tigers. Oh my! Supergirl drops the elephants in a trench and Streaky lures the big cats into the water. After tying the gorilla up with vines, they leave as the baffled villagers try to make sense of being saved by a flying girl and her super cat. Back at the orphanage, Paul is in trouble with the superintendent for being a lying scumbag, but Linda summons Krypton to pretend it was he all along playing tricks on Streaky, and by extension Paul, when Streaky pushed over the tree and she lets the poor lad believe he was seeing things, leading him to a life in and out of mental institutions. Uh, the splash pages are seen from the story, as is the norm for this time period. It's an alternative cover. It's Streaky pushing down on a seesaw and pushing Paul upwards as he yells for attention. It's okay, it does its job. Nothing more, nothing less. It's all right, isn't it? Mm. Oh, I'm getting off you there. It is quite yeah. funny seeing Streaky leaning on the uh, the seesaw. And you see, though, they've planted that she uses a little wind-up mouse. Mm-hmm. Seeded in the story. Very clever on the splash page. Streaky's page. actually thinking, bugger, he didn't fly off like a hoax. <laughs> He was hoping he would just go (laughs) straight through the air. That would have been funny. Although this isn't a Superman story, it is nice to see him taking time out of his busy schedule to just show up at an orphanage and do nice things for kids. Granted, his cousin being here probably gave them an in, but it was still nice to see him do this. Kind of hard to imagine the the current day Superman taking time out to visit an orphanage, isn't it? Mm. And just doing nice things for the (laughs) sake of it. It's probably not angsty enough for him. Probably not. Plus he brought Crypto... Yeah. Kids love crypto. Mm-hmm. Always got, got his own cartoon. Yeah, always got time for crypto. Superman then gives the kids presents. Little capes for them to wear. Oh, that was quite sweet. How, how did he make them? 
Oh, I would imagine they're only normal. Like, they're not made out of kryptonite cloth. Oh, I wouldn't then? have thought. Uh, I do wonder how smart this story ultimately was. Because within the body of this story, they give a cape to a character within it. He puts that cape on a cat. And he thinks that by putting a cape on something, they can fly. Isn't this this the kind of woolly thinking that leads children to jump off roofs of houses? Yeah. Because they've got a cape on. Because they think there are batteries under the cape and that enables them to fly. Mm -hmm. You start from the ground. Um, I've got to admit, I'm a bit woolly on the whole ex-Kryptonite thing, which we see in flashback, but there's no little footnote telling us which issue this happened in. Mm. Supergirl created ex-Kryptonite by covering real Kryptonite with various chemicals... Every chemical known to science. <laughs> Real scientific. <laughs> to see what would happen and if it would block its deadly rays. That seems real scientific to me. Let's just paint this kryptonite with every chemical known to science and see what happens. If I put paracetamol in the <laughs> heroin, does that mean I don't get addicted? <laughs> no, that's not how it works. How, how did she hold the kryptonite? Why she was painting it with various colours? She got streaky to hold she, it. You quite clearly see her just hurling it out the window. She, she's holding tongs. Oh, yeah, right, so it won't affect her because she's holding tongs. Is that how kryptonite works now? The, the lead tongs. She's still in the same room as it. She's wearing lead clothes. Okay, all right, <laughs> fair enough. I'm not even arguing. Jim Mooney draws pretty cute cats, though. I do. I love that panel on page um Page three of the story, panel three, where Streaky's just kind of looking at the reader going, meow. Oh, that was quite cute. I quite like Streaky. I've got to say, when you know when they talk about kryptonite? Yes. Ex-kryptonite? Yes. Am I the only one that heard, um, he's not pining, he's passed on. This kryptonite is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. It's a stiff bereft of life, it rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed it to the floor, he'd be pushing up daisies. His metabolic processes is now history. He's off the twig. He's kicked the bucket. He's shuffled off his mortal coil, ran down the curtain, joined the bleeding choir invisible. This is an ex-kryptonite. Just me, then? I think so, yeah. <laughs> Further on in the story, Streaky plays with wool, because that's what cats do. And uh, he bites through the lamppost, as we mentioned, the lamppost. The lamp, as we mentioned in the synopsis. Paul really doesn't seem concerned that there's a live lamp in his room that has the potential to kill him. I'd be more worried about the flying cat than the broken lamp. He doesn't seem at all worried about the flying cat. Well, no. He seems to find the flying cat quite funny. I love the way the Silver Age comics just bounce around as well, with, with very little rhyme or reason. There's no reason at all for this to end up in an African jungle, is there? No. It just does. And the language used for the African tribes people seems very off-colour <laughs> by today's standards, didn't it? Mm. I was a bit concerned about that. But, you know, best not to judge by today's oh, how, standards. How they leave the animals on that island and make it very, very clear that those animals will never get off that little island for the rest of their lives. For the rest of their lives, it won't be very long after everybody eats them. Well, after they starve to death, thanks to Supergirl and Streaky <laughs> who just stranded them there. Yes, yes. Uh, we were doing so well. well <laughs> it's really a typically Silver Age comic story, this one, isn't it? Yeah. It's really, it really does give the, the Silver Age's silly brigade plenty of ammo. By the end of this story, Supergirl has managed to convince a fellow orphanage resident he sees things that are happening. An African tribe that there are flying cats, 
and made Crypto out to be a practical joker. Because you know, if there's one thing Crypto's known for, <laughs> it's his practical joking. It is, yes. So Paul isn't a liar, he's just mad. <laughs> well, that makes it all alright then, doesn't it? Yeah, that's, that's why he's still in the orphanage. Yeah, I mean, Paul, Paul's already quite insane to begin with, in that he believes putting a cape on a cat <laughs> will give it superpowers. Yeah. So we can only be thankful he didn't try it on himself. This is the type of kid who puts hamsters in his <laughs> microwave if, he, <laughs> if he's being criticised. I mean, if he tried it on himself, this would have been a completely different kind of very special issue, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. There is an element of Paul's character at play here that he just seems to want some attention. A not uncommon feeling amongst orphaned children, I would have thought. But Supergirl seems to go out of her way to deny him this simple pleasure. This makes her inadvertently seem a little bit cruel. To be completely fair, though, this isn't without its charms. Crypto and Streaky are both lovable, and having them think human thoughts is hysterical. But this story really doesn't argue my case that the Silver Age isn't deserving of its reputation. Hmm. Clichés don't become clichés without having an element of truth, I suppose. What did you think of this one, Michael, given this is completely out of your ballywick? It wasn't great. It was It was actually better than the main Superman story. Really? Well, I don't agree with that at all. No, that was better than the Superman one. What, in this issue? Yeah. Or the one we're covering for the, the show? The one in this issue. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The main story, the main Superman story in this issue was The Captive of the Amazons by Jerry Siegel and Wayne Boring. It's a pretty standard Superman tale of the era. Superman is conned into being the husband of an alien princess where men are timid and weak and he, in turn, cons her into thinking he's a large oaf who keeps messing stuff up. Hardly a forgotten classic, was it? It was crap. Not to put too fine a point on it. It was, it was super dickery and not even at its finest. It, it's got a horrible story. Superman's just, oh, I'll just mess this up because it's fun. <laughs> the art's crap and Superman's fat all the way through it. He's Super tubby man. Fat? He really is. I can show you some panels where he's huge. I think Wayne Boring's fan base will probably be sending you hate mail. Alright, I'll give you that on page eight. <laughs> he looks quite portly. I'll give you that. But uh, he's fine on the rest of it. Except for that middle panel. Uh, except for the middle panel on page 10. The top one. And, yeah, alright, so maybe Wayne Boring <laughs> drew a beefy Superman. There's nothing wrong with... I mean, why am I arguing for that? I, I didn't disagree with you. I thought Caps of the Animals was, was quite silly. Yeah. But, alright, fair enough. But, but what did you think of the Supergirl story? It wasn't great, but let's comparing it. But it was better than Captive of the Amazons. Yeah. Well, it's a good job we're not covering that story then, it isn't is, it? It is, yeah. The story that we are covering... A Superman story that demonstrates the era's propensity for imaginary tales. The Old Man of Metropolis first appeared in Action Comics 270, cover dated November 1960. The cover is again by Kurt Swan and Stan Kay and shows the amazing story of Superman's old age. Superman bemoans his old age as he looks wistfully at Superwoman and Lois whines that she's now an old maid. It's pretty good and would make you wonder what was going on, surely the point of a cover. Did you like that cover, Michael? It's it's good. It's alright, isn't it? Yeah. I don't see anything wrong with it. I do like that he's got Crypto on the cover and his cape's all ripped. Yeah. So Crypto's like a down and out. And I do like how throughout this entire issue, Kurt Swan draws an older Superman to look like Jimmy Stewart. I thought that was quite funny. Said you don't know who Jimmy Stewart is, do you? No. You ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? No. And Liberty Valance? No. And The Shootest? No. You need to broaden your movie horizons, dude. I have been doing. Yeah, well, as long as it's directed by David Lynch, 
You have been doing. Produced by Toho. Yeah, produced by Toho. A David Lynch Godzilla film. Do you know that? That's probably pretty good. It, it might be. Clark Superman Kent is asked to write a story about the inhabitants of the Midvale Orphanage to help them find parents. Whilst there, his secret cousin, Linda Supergirl Lee, gives him a story all about what she'll be like as a superwoman in the future, which Clark reads as he dozes off. His nap is interrupted, although if you can't guess where this is going, you've not read enough comics, by a rocket from Cape Canaveral going awry, which also happened in the Supergirl story we just covered. Is this a common occurrence in the 50s? Anyway, Superman stops the rocket, but he's moving so fast he flies back in time, where he awakens to find himself trapped in the future, facing a mirror image that is its elder self. He learns that he lost his superpowers years ago due to overexposure to kryptonite, and he's now a useless, feeble old man, a fact that everyone tells him at every available opportunity. Superwoman tells him that he is retired, Perry's dead, and Jimmy is now editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet, where she works in her secret identity of Linda Lee doing Clark's old job. Clark wanders alone, seeing that Luther is now Murr, and Crypto is in the dog pound, and, despondent, he makes a trip to the Fortress of Solitude, where he learns Supergirl has cleared out all of his stuff and thrown it in the basement. I didn't know the Fortress had a basement. Yeah, she made one. Just to throw all his stuff into it, <laughs> further. Returning to Metropolis, Clark finds a huge chunk of kryptonite just lying in the street, and a copper arrests him when he picks it up, as possession of kryptonite is a fine or jail time. Clark is thrown in jail, because he doesn't have any money, with Bizarro, also old and infirm, who was arrested for vagrancy. Lois arrives and bails Clark out, and just as she is about to kiss him, Clark wakes up. It was all a dream. Realising that old age can be lonely without someone to share it, Superman sends Lois a bouquet of flowers. Aww. That was quite sweet, that, wasn't it? At the end, there. We begin with the traditional opener that teases the main story. I loved that in the future, Mankind's sartorial style, where they've evolved into a proto-Kryptonian look with capes and overpants. Men still wear fedoras, though. Yes. Which I thought was absolutely neat. No matter what fashion changes happen, fedoras will never go out of style. It's You know what's interesting? Yeah. If this was set 40 to 50 years in the future, then this story was set in between 2000 and 2010. Okay. So let's have a look how they would have predicted the future. <laughs> I don't appear to be wearing yellow or a purple cape, nor am I wearing purple overpants, although I do occasionally like a fedora. Okay. So I do like that that was their idea of the future. I think I might have the pink guess-up with a green cape in my wardrobe. <laughs> do, you, do you have that lovely pink hat? I, I do, Does yeah. that offset your hair <laughs> like it does with that young lady on the splash pad? It brings out my eyes. It does, yeah. Pink <laughs> eyes, yeah. Um, Superman comics of this time period, despite having an almost unlimited budget, still have the feeling of being episodes of the 50s TV show, and this is no exception. I did always wonder... Uh, had actor George Reeves not passed away, would they have introduced Supergirl into the show? Because that would have been quite cool. Clark is sent by Perry to cover this story at the orphanage to help them get adopted. Does the Daily Planet publish any real news? Uh, only when Superman's got his day off. It's, it's, it's like, uh, Clark, I've arranged for you to go to the orphanage to write up the talents of gifted children to help them be... Can you imagine... An editor-in-chief of a newspaper nowadays doing this. You're my top reporter, Clark. Go and write a story about an orphanage. Well, maybe um, the day, not the Daily Bugle, the Daily Planet is is set 
um, in really good sales. Yeah. It's the highest selling newspaper in, of the 50s. in Metropolis. Mm. Uh, it's the only newspaper in Metropolis. Well, there you go. You've got a steady set of sales. They're so popular, they can do whatever they please. And people will read it. Yeah. You know, the only way of newspapers would cover stories about orphanages nowadays is if they found evidence of kiddie fiddling. True. Isn't it? And if it was kiddie fiddling by a celebrity, even better. Mm-hmm. See, what's happened is, in this newspaper as well, Lois Lane is doing an article on the dangers of falling asleep in the workplace. <laughs> Page two. We've slagged off websites such as Super Dickery, but unfortunately... We've got to be honest, haven't we? There are elements of it in this story. Even in context, Clark dissing Linda's painting in front of her fellow orphans makes him out to be a real jerk. I thought it was hilarious. Your painting's crap. Secret (laughs) wing, because you know I'm Superman. We've got something going on. Yeah, but her friends at the orphanage don't know he's Superman. So basically, this young girl has gone up to this complete stranger, or noted reporter, and said, Do you like my painting, Mr. Kent? And Clark's gone, "Uh, Get out of the way, kid. You ain't got no talent. And she's crushed. And it's like... Ah, uh, wink. <laughs> but the rest of the people are just suddenly like, oh, Clark's a bit of a nobody. I like that this is the second issue we've covered tonight where Superman meets Supergirl, and in both times, not only is he giving her the secret wink, <laughs> but he's told us that he's giving her a secret <laughs> wink. Well, just so we know he's not going to be in the next newspaper being accused of killing Fiddler. Just so we know he's not being a complete tool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Head of breaking news, Clark Kent winks at a small girl. <laughs> you know, that is a headline of the Daily Bugle. The Daily Bugle, sorry, the Daily Planet considers that headline news. Yeah. Clark winks at girl. Is there kiddie fiddling at Midvale Orphanage? Because he can't say, no, she's my cousin. Clark falls asleep at the bottom of uh, the second page of the story. Hands up, all those people who didn't spot that this was a dream sequence. <laughs> None of us have put our hands up. If you didn't spot that this was a dream sequence, you need to hand in your Superman membership cards. Clark is awakened by a runaway rocket that was launched from Cape Canaveral. Was this a big deal in the early 60s? It, it must have been. Because there was a runaway rocket in the Supergirl story we've just covered. Maybe that happened at the same time. Did Cape Canaveral really have such lousy health and safety policies <laughs> at that point? I, I think they did, yeah. They would just launch rockets... And just to see what happened. Yeah. And you can just see him back at the base car, you go, another one went off course, Bob. Better fire up the next one, see where that ends up. At least this one didn't blast Idaho into pieces. <laughs> Superman stopped it. Good job, eh? I, I don't, I what don't. would we do without Superman? Fire up the next one. Yeah. What would we do without Superman? We would have huge chunks of Nevada. That was just big craters because of our rockets. We, we, we've not gone through health and safety checks yet. Doesn't matter, Superman's in time. <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter. <laughs> Superman will save us. Page three, we've already mentioned Superman the Demolence to Jimmy Stewart, presumably. If this wasn't a dream sequence, right, Superman would have asked the quite obvious question of where old Superman of this time is. Yeah. Because we should have two elderly Supermen wandering around here, shouldn't we? Hmm. The Superman of our time, were this not a dream sequence, has come forward in time. Right. So there would presumably be an elderly Superman here, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Unless, if he's gone forward in time, he would remain young Superman. And he would see old Superman in the future, wouldn't he? Yeah. Or, if we go with the non the linear time progression thing, he would have gone forward in time, and there would have been no Superman. Maybe. Because he's gone forward in time at that point, and not gone back in time. Yeah. 
Maybe his consciousness went into the body of future Superman. So what you're saying is this is a quantum leap scenario. Yeah. Where he has leapt into the body of old Superman and therefore hasn't actually travelled in time. Or maybe it's all just a dream and hasn't actually come through. Or maybe it's all just a dream and none of this matters. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going with that one. That's what I think. It's a good answer. I think so. Supergirl explains that Superman no longer has his powers and gets in a few digs at his super memory. Doesn't she? Like, well, how could you forget that? Numpty. <laughs> Get back to the nursing home. Clark then goes to the Daily Planet. I love Jimmy's greeting. Hey there, Clark Kent, alias Superman. Is that how he speaks to him every time he meets him? Does that not get really old? Clark Kent, Superman. Hello, Clark Kent, alias Superman. How are you doing today? Piss off, Jimmy. <laughs> Richard, Richard Mayhew. <laughs> every time he meets him, he greets him as Clark Kent, alias Superman. Yeah. I actually found that really funny. Christmas cards. <laughs> to Clark, to Clark Kent, Kent, alias Superman. Do you think there's some residual bitterness there <laughs> that he kept his secret identity from him all those years? There could be. I think that's what it is, yeah. Jimmy actually hates Clark in this issue. Yes, well, he clearly hates Perry White. On page five, he's got a bust of his old boss with a plaque above it that reads, Perry White, deceased! Yeah. <laughs> is he taking some kind of sadistic glee in Perry being dead? Isn't he? It's like Jimmy's a real tool bag in this story. An absolute tool. Still, I did think Clark was obviously very stupid. After losing his superpowers, he just announces to the world that he used to be Superman. Yeah. And all his old villains didn't think, Right! He's lost his powers. He's lost his powers. Let's go kill him. <laughs> None of that happened. No one thought like that in the 50s. Nobody thought like that. No, because as we will find out later, Luther just went and got an honest job. Yeah. You know, very strange. I did like this moment. Um, Clark really feels that his lifetime's piling up, as Linda has not only replaced him as Superwoman, she's took his job at the planet. And in a wonderful moment of, oh, bitter irony, he really does need to wear glasses. Mm-hmm. That was brilliant. He absolutely, because he, he couldn't read anything. Yeah. You, you know, no, sorry, Clark, you've really got to wear glasses now because you're old and useless. Because at every opportunity, every character in this story likes to say to Superman, you're now old and useless. Have I mentioned how useless you are now that you're old? Clark Kent alias. And useless. <laughs> Did they kind of hang, get banging over the head with how useless he was? Get the message across. Now that he's old and useless. <laughs> Did you know that he was a bit stupid? After discovering he's not Superman anymore, he's got no superpowers anymore, so what does he do? He takes his suit off and goes walking around in his Superman costume. Yeah. The reward for this, on page um, on page six of the story, is that some kid who's dressed as Robin points out that he's a strange old man. <laughs> and I love his mum as well. His mum goes, hmm, I've seen him somewhere before in that uniform. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, because it's the same uniform that Supergirl was, now that she's Superwoman. Figure it out, love. <laughs> and I love that little line. That line, though, is actually quite sad, isn't it? I'm the forgotten Superman. Joke. <laughs> I actually got quite sad though. Did you? I actually, I felt really sorry for Clark throughout this entire story. Especially when people just kept pointing out how old and useless he was. He finds out that Luther is now the mayor of Metropolis. Which I was really impressed with because I thought traditionally the job of mayor happened before you got a criminal record. (laughs) Yeah. Normally, you can't have a criminal record and become mayor. Maybe he bought the position. (laughs) He bought his way in, didn't he? Alright, fair enough. Page 7 was actually the saddest page of the entire story. Crypto is still alive. How? I 
after 50 years isn't explained because he clearly doesn't have his superpowers anymore. So presumably at that point he starts aging like a normal dog, which means surely he should be an ex-crypto. Maybe it's a slow transition. You reckon? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. But then he gets hauled off to the dog pound. Yeah. And you sat there going, what? (laughs) That's just really sad. And then you think about it, and you go, but actually this doesn't make any sense, because again, alright, where's the Superman of this time? Why was he not looking after crypto? And if for some reason he's not able to, why was Linda not looking after crypto? Uh, he didn't go uh, along with Streaker. Especially seeing as Streaky probably still has his, her superpowers. Yeah. Because she's not old or useless. Page 8, Superman buys a rocket sled to go to the Fortress of Solitude, but realises that he can't lift the, the key to open the Fortress of Solitude door, the giant airplane marker that he had in the Silver Age. He can't call Supergirl, because despite Jimmy giving him the signal watch a couple of pages earlier, on the page prior to this, it just dies of old age. That's actually what it says. <laughs> he presses the button on the signal watch, and it goes... <laughs> and Superman goes, oh, the watch just fell apart from old age. And you're like, is it old and useless, perhaps? <laughs> so he can't call Supergirl on it. So he just stands there... In the middle of the Arctic, waiting for Supergirl to happen along. This is stated in the story. Yeah. He's waiting for it to just happen along. Why did he not just fly back in his rocket? Or could he not shout Supergirl really, really loud and she'll hear and him? And she'd hear him with a super hearing. Yeah. I mean, clearly the rocket thing doesn't run out of fuel because he uses it to return to Impropolis on the next page. That's not old and useless. So that's not old, well, he's only just bought that. From a story point of view, wouldn't it have been better to have him use the watch here... And it died when he signalled Supergirl. So he yeah. got that one last use out of it to explain that he didn't stand in the Arctic for ages, freezing his nads off, possibly dying of hypothermia, <laughs> on the off chance that Supergirl will just happen to come by this day. Yeah. Because he does say it much later, when Superwoman happens to arrive, he could have been stood there for weeks for all we know. Three weeks later. Yeah. Oh, Superman died. <laughs> Three weeks later and she comes and goes, oh look, Clark's built me a nice statue of old Superman <laughs> in front of the fortress door. That's very kind of him. You can remember how old and useless he is. <laughs> Maybe he's not old and useless at all, if he can still make ice sculptures. <laughs> oh, very nice. Page nine. I do love the idea. That this huge rock of kryptonite, and it is huge, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely massive. It's just lying in the road. And the copper clearly saw Clark pick it up in the street. He clearly sees, he's in the panel, he clearly sees that this isn't Clark's rock of kryptonite. He finds it in the road. In the middle of the road. So Clark's wandered into the street around all the cars, because he's old and useless, and therefore doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. And then what does the copper do? He arrests Clark for having kryptonite because possession of kryptonite is our oldest law because it's harmful to Superwoman who patrols our city, just in case we didn't know that's what she did. Mm. I suspect this was just the the future equivalent of a speed trap. Leave a piece of kryptonite <laughs> in the middle of the road and then arrest the person when they pick it up because it's a thousand dollar fine. Yeah. Clearly says that's a thousand dollar fine. I, I reckon they were just messing with him. Hey, look, he's old and useless. Yeah. How can we mess with him? Let's get a thousand dollar fine off him for no reason. It's a cunning plan with just one flaw. Clark hasn't got any money. He spent it all on his rocket sled. Mm. And he doesn't appear to have anywhere to live. Feeling very bad for Clark. So he throws him into jail 
with Bizarro, who was arrested for vagrancy. I liked that. Which was quite hysterical. But it states his powers disappeared with the onslaught of old age. Yeah. Which kind of implies that old age just happens like the flick of a switch, doesn't it? <laughs> One minute Bizarro was perfectly okay in the peak of pinnacle of, of human or bizarro perfection, and then the next minute he suddenly needed a cane to walk with, <laughs> and he's stuck here on Earth. Poor Bizarro. Me, I'm really bad at walking. <laughs> Me, I'm really good at walking. Me, I've got good arthritis. <laughs> Me, I'm in no pain whatsoever. <laughs> Lois shows up, because he's been studiously avoiding Lois, after finding out that Lois Lane's now, Lois Lane, sorry, Lana Lang's now married to a millionaire. Mm. She got over Superman quite quick, didn't she? And Lois comes along and bails him out. But she leaves Bizarro because, and get this, this dialogue is actually in the story. I'm letting Bizarro stay here because he's treated kindly. <laughs> so he's not your problem, Lois. What happens, right, when he, his time's up? They don't just keep him in jail indefinitely. Yeah. I presume at some point they're going to let him go. It clearly says in the story it's a thousand dollar fine or however much however many days in jail for having kryptonite Bizarro's there for vagrancy they don't normally keep him more than a night yeah so this copper this kindly copper who just framed elderly and useless Clark Kent for possession of kryptonite and banged him in jail despite the fact he clearly doesn't know what he was doing because he was walking in the middle of a busy traffic section we're supposed to believe this guy has a heart of gold and he's just looking after Bizarro <laughs> on his own recognizance no, no way. This guy is a crook through and through. He, that speed trap, if it hadn't got Superman, it would have got somebody else. I believe that he's abusing Bizarro. He goes in in the morning, he punches him around, makes him feel good, makes him feel like a man. And Bizarro's, me, I'm happy to be hit. So this guy thinks, oh, well, he's happy about it, so I'm just going to punch him some more. I don't think Bizarro is being treated kindly at all, Lois, quite frankly. I've got to say, this was a truly remarkable story, wasn't it? I mean, we've sat and took the piss out of it, but and it is easy to look at this and discard it as just another imaginary story where nothing of import happens. But I felt that this is to ignore what was truly a marvellous mediation on the consequences of ageing and the feelings of redundancy that come from people treating you as having outlived your usefulness. Throughout this story... Jerry Siegel takes every opportunity to rub it in that Clark is now a second-class citizen, bereft of purpose. It may get a little heavy-handed, but Clark's feelings of despondency are quite sad, leaving the reader with quite a feeling of melancholy. Siegel was adept at this kind of story. Whilst it is inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, I really doubt that Superman followed up on his feelings with Lois. This is how comics were back then. Rarely were previous stories referenced so that the publishers could keep an inventory and reprint them as they saw fit. And this story is a prime example of how this supposed silly era of comics could produce a story that, whilst, you know, is a little bit daft, was heartfelt and poignant. I thought this was this was really a forgotten classic. I loved this. Mm. I ended up being really quite sad about it. The ending... When I was reading it. Is quite sad. Yeah, just as he's about to kiss Lois, he just disappears back down the time barrier, which is actually just waking up from a dream. Yeah. And he ends up buying Lois some flowers because, you know, nobody wants to be alone, do they? And useless. And useless, <laughs> yeah. So that was... Uh, yeah, I thought this was really nice. I thought this was a really sweet story when it was all said and done. What did you think of it? I, I liked it. What did you like about it? It, it wasn't... Um, it, c- compared to the other one, there wasn't much super dickery in it. There was no super dickery in it. Well, there you go, it's a win. Apart from Linda showing him the painting 
Uh, and him going, ah, I will wink at Linda, just to make out that I'm joking when I say, your painting sucks! But secretly, I'm not. <laughs> so other than that, no, I liked it. I thought, I thought it was a really good story. A really quite touching story. The, I, I, one of the reasons we picked it, I'd never read it before, it got a good write-up. I thought, go on, we'll give that a go. And I did think they did a good job of actually focusing on the melancholic aspect of the thing that you read that as an adult and you're going, oh, mm. I see what they're doing here. There's a subtext to this. <laughs> and you read it as a kid and you go, ha, Superman's old. <laughs> God, I'm never going to be old and useless like that. Yeah, and, you know, ultimately we all become old and useless. Uh, the Supergirl backup strip was Supergirl's busiest day, which apparently featured Laurie Lamaris, Batman and Robin but I, and Crypto, but I didn't read it. I ran out of time. And a giant octopus. And a giant octopus. You can never go wrong with giant octopuses. Was King Kong when you knew them? In my opinion. Or a Godzilla. Well, Godzilla didn't fight a giant octopus. No, he didn't, did he? No, that's very true. If Superman could be said to have an equal in the Silver Age of comics in terms of brand recognition, it would have to be the amazing Spider-Man. Whilst Batman had a blip in popularity thanks to the Adam West TV show, Spider-Man's star eclipsed even the caped Crusader, and he quickly usurped the Fantastic Four as Marvel's flagship character. Created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko in 1962, after a pass by Jack Kirby was deemed unsuitable, Spider-Man became the poster child for Marvel. Whilst not being the first superhero to engage in the trademarked Marvel angst, that award must go to the Fantastic Four mainstay The Thing, Spider-Man's alter ego Peter Parker certainly monopolised it as time went on. Spider-Man was different to the other superheroes of the time by being young, only 15 at the time of the strip's beginning, and being a man for whom superpowers were not as much a blessing as a curse. Peter was highly intelligent but frequently pissy. He was likeable but did unlikable things. He made mistakes and triumphed as much as he failed. Initially, he used his powers for personal gain and was crushed for his hubris by being indirectly responsible for the death of his father figure. In the Silver Age, this level of characterization was unprecedented. Add some of the best villains in comics, sprinkle liberally with one of the best supporting casts in comics, and mix with a large dollop of heavy angst and Marvel humor, and you have a character audiences of all ages could identify with. He gave kids somebody to relate to, and made adults remember what it was like to to be a teenager. The first 38 issues of The Amazing Spider-Man are a textbook example of comics in the latter stages of the Silver Age. The writing and art become one and together are stronger than the sum of their parts. Continued plots and characters allowed for the deepening of the storylines and further exploration of heavier themes. There was also a new villain every month, pretty much, and this level of creativity and excitement has rarely been matched before or since. It's no wonder I balk when people say the Silver Age is silly. Every month, Lee and Ditko created magic. And there is no greater example of this than the Marvel pick for today, Amazing Spider-Man, issue 33, which is in my huge Amazing Spider-Man omnibus. We could kill a vagrant with it, but I'll be damned if I'm going to damage my Spider-Man omnibus by hitting somebody in the head. Unless they're old and useless anyway. And they're old and useless, I'm going to die soon anyway, yeah. So So we need to open the omnibus at page 929. (laughs) for Amazing Spider-Man issue 33, which was originally cover dated February 1966. This issue has one of the single most iconic image in Spider-Man history as its cover. Hell, comics history. The 
cover copy simply reads the final chapter and Steve Ditko's excellent imagery is left to fill the cover and catch the eye. Spider-Man lies trapped under a large machine as water fills the room around him. Despite being covered from head to toe in a full body costume and even then the reader can only see Spider-Man's head, right hand and left arm, Ditko manages to capture the despondency and despair of Spider-Man in the body language as he is trapped and unable to move. To be able to capture so much body language when using so little of the body is the work of a consummate artist. One of the best covers ever. But feel free to disagree. I, I just don't see effort and despair. I see him giving up. Then you want to read it because you don't know why Spider-Man's giving up. Come on, what is wrong with that cover? I don't know if there's anything wrong with the cover. It's an absolutely fantastic except, cover. Except for the water that seems to appear out of nowhere. Well, the, the left room at the top of the page for the logo, which at that point, remember, was pasted on. Yeah. So even if Ditko did draw the water lines all the way up to the top, the paste up of the logo and the comics code and the, the corner box and everything would have covered it up. So I don't think it's fair to blend Ditko for that. Okay. I think that's an iconic cover. One of the best covers of comics ever. That's my holy grail of Ditko original art. I don't even know if it still exists, but if it did, I would want it. Absolutely phenomenal. The final chapter. One of the most thoroughly satisfying Spider-Man sagas you have ever thrilled to. Was scripted and edited by Stan Lee, plotted and illustrated by Steve Ditko, boarded and lettered by Artie Simek, and read and enjoyed by you, lovely listener. Or lovely reader, I suppose the point would have been, wouldn't it? So far, we have seen... As Peter Parker's Aunt May lies dying in the hospital, victim of the effects of radioactivity in her bloodstream, a sympathetic Dr. Connors waits for Spider-Man to bring him the ISO 36, for it is the only serum which might save Peter's aunt. But the stolen serum is in the possession of Dr. Octopus, whose masked henchmen wait outside a steel door as Spidey and Doc Ock battle within. And none suspect that a sudden leak in the underwater dome of the hidden hideout is growing bigger and bigger, while Spider-Man himself, having beaten his multi-armed foe, is now trapped beneath tons of fallen steel, with the precious serum lying just out of reach as the fatal seconds tick by. Come on, that is a page and a half. Even if it's just recapping the last issue. Well, what's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Spider-Man remains trapped under a collapsed machine caused by the collapse of Dr. Octopus's underwater base, the serum he needs tantalizingly out of reach. Struggling, straining, Spider-Man sees the faces of his dying aunt and his dead uncle, deaths he is either partially responsible for or will be responsible for. Feeling it is hopeless, Spider-Man almost gives up as the crack the water seeps through grows wider. But anyone can fight when the odds are easy. It's when the odds are stacked against you, that's when it counts. As Spider-Man strains against the weight placed upon him, the sheer energy he would need to expend seems daunting, especially after the fight with Dr. Octopus and his men has already drained him. But slowly, oh so slowly, the machine starts to budge. Muscles pop as Spider-Man moves his legs into position, taking the strain as he pushes on through the pain, through the torture, finally, in 
inexorably pushing the machinery off his weary frame. Exhausted, Spider-Man forces his limbs to move and grabs the serum just as the ceiling crack bursts and water cascades into the room. Spider-Man allows himself to be carried forward and the deluge pulls him along, but the undertow drags him under and into the waiting arms of more of Doc Ock's men. Spider-Man fights free and pulls himself out of the water, gasping for air. Sadly, there is no respite for the plucky team as more of Ock's men await him. As the men all swarm around Spider-Man, he fights on. Dazed, fatigued beyond measure, Spider-Man refuses to yield, fighting to the last man, unaware that he continues to fight when all others have fallen. Shaking, Spider-Man retrieves the serum and makes his way out of the hidden base. Spider-Man makes his way to Dr. Kurt Connors, who analyzes the serum, and Spider-Man runs an additional test on his own blood, the blood that caused Aunt May's condition in the first place. All looks well, and Spider-Man rushes the serum over to the hospital. With the transfusion started, all Spider-Man can do now is wait. Spider-Man fills the time by taking some photos of the unconscious men for the money and calls reporter Frederick Foswell at the bugle. Foswell arrives with the police and hidden away, Spider-Man takes a few more snaps. After changing back to his civilian clothes, Peter Parker takes the pictures to the bugle, where Betty Brandt sees him limping and his face beaten. Unable to take Peter's dangerous side, she leaves sobbing and Peter realises they can never be. After selling his photos to Jameis and demanding far more money than normal, Peter returns to the hospital where the doctor gives him a once-over and declares he is on the verge of complete physical exhaustion. Peter promises he will return home when he knows the fate of Aunt May, and on that score, the prognosis is positive. Satisfied and quickly dodging questions about why Spider-Man would be helping a sick old lady, Peter limps home alone. Aww. <laughs> Uh, the first page of the story, as we mentioned earlier, is neither a splash nor an alternative cover. Instead, a brief summation of the story so far. I actually thought this was a much better approach of recapping the story than in the rather over-expository dialogue in the issue itself, and it shows how Marvel were changing comics in the Silver Age. This wasn't a 10 or 12 page story, this was a 20 page epic that was itself the sequel to a 20 page epic that was building upon events from other epics. This entire story hinges on a plot device from Amazing Spider-Man issue 10, 23 issues earlier, and events were recapped from even earlier than that. Marvel was slowly creating a mythology. It was a pretty excellent recap, all things considered, telling us everything we need to know to read on while setting up a problem for later in the issue. Ox henchmen are here seen waiting for Spidey to escape from the room he's trapped in. And that final panel of the first page, Spider-Man trapped under the steel machinery, the steerum he needs to save Aunt May's life just desperately out of reach. You were beginning to complain about that page earlier on. Was it? Well, you said it's nothing but a recap of the last issue, but surely it's better to recap the last issue there on the first page and then go straight into the story. And then you've not got panels of dialogue where he goes, I really need to get the ISO 33 to Aunt May before she dies, for it is only this serum that can save her life, for it was my radioactive blood that caused the problem. Would you rather have had that? Well, it would have fit in the Spider-Man story. All Peter does is whine about things he's done anyway. He doesn't whine. He does. He, he has, he has, the, has moments of self-reflection. If I see a comic that says the final chapter, I'd go, well, I better not read it until I read all the other ones then. Why would you read the last chapter and not the ones before Because it? comics were single issues. Well, yeah, I, I was just saying I prefer it without a recap. 
but that wouldn't make sense for this. So this story then would start on page two with Peter Parker just trapped under machinery and you're like, well, how did he get here? What's he doing here? Why is he here? What's he doing it for? You get the last issue, don't you? No, because at that point you may not have been able to get the last issue because comics didn't work like that well, then. You wait 30 years and wait for the omnibus. No. Or, or you collect it then. <laughs> That's not how it worked. Are you being deliberately obtuse? I might be a little bit. Page two through five, one of the most well-known and exciting sequences of art to appear in the comics medium. Spider-Man is trapped and giving in to despair. The weight he carries too heavy for his teenage frame to handle. The problems he faces insurmountable as more and more is placed before him as if testing his resolve. And that's just the subtext. As he strains and struggles against his burden, the faces of May and Ben Parker flash before his eyes, and Spider-Man makes the ultimate decision to not give up. He strains and strains with every fibre of his being, slowly, inch by inch, gaining purchase, moving himself into position to be able to use his leverage to push the weight off his back. Stan's dialogue is a tad overwrought by today's standards, but it works. Selling the moment, but this is really Ditko's finest hour. Look at the composition of the panels. On page two, where Spider-Man is hemmed in by the machinery, the panels are a standard three-panel grid across the page for six panels, representing two-thirds of the page. Ditko draws the panels to be full, as if they are straining to keep Spider-Man in, giving the reader a claustrophobic feel, similar to what the character is feeling. He opens this up to one panel in the bottom third, as Spider-Man has the hero's resolve moment. His steadfast refusal to give in. Ditko's water droplets, here small and infrequent, are drawn like huge weights forcing Spider-Man down. This page alone shows Ditko's absolute mastery of the form, putting him in Eisner's league. But... It just keeps improving as it goes along. On page three, Ditko has a six-panel page. The top two panels, long but compressed, as Spider-Man begins his Herculean task, and he is shown to be very small in the panel, giving the reader the scope of his undertaking. Panels three and four are two large square boxes, symbolically rising as Spider-Man manages to push his arms, although they are still bent at the elbow. Then, the final two panels, longer still, as Spider-Man straightens his arms, pushing the machinery up. Ditko has the water droplets become bigger still on page four, this time a standard three-panel grid, followed by a three-quarter length panel as Spider-Man manages to crawl onto his knees and gets a foot on the floor underneath him. Finally, the piece de resistance, a full-page splash of Spider-Man, exhausted but unbeaten, pushing with all his might and the machinery being hurled aloft. An absolutely stunning example of sequential comics art. If this isn't taught in art classes around the world, then it ought to be. I'm sure you're going to pick on that and be obtuse for no reason other than you don't like Steve Ditko. No, no, it was good. That was it. It It was was good. No, no, it was just the floaty heads. Well, the floaty heads aren't really that important in the grand scheme of things. I know, but I always think floaty heads let things down, especially covers. I don't like floaty heads. They're only symbolic, dude. They're there to show the reader what it is he's fretting about. Now, would the scene work without them? Possibly. Certainly, it would possibly work without the Aunt May stuff. Because Aunt May is seen later on in the issue. No one likes Aunt May anyway. But I would argue... Yes, she's old and useless. (laughs) But I would argue you need the Uncle Ben floaty heads. Uncle Ben, at this point, was not referred to every single issue... (laughs) 
like he has been in more recent times. Right. Dick Cordley went entire swathes of Spider-Man without referring back to his origin, without mentioning why he does this. So the, the shots of Uncle Ben are necessary for the drama. I'm more interested in the artistic point of view here, yeah. where Dick Cordley's use of panels, especially on these three pages, two, three, two, three four, and five, is just awesome. I love the panel structure. I don't normally notice stuff like that. Yeah. Because primarily, I'm it's the writing I'm interested in. It's the story. But the way he drew these four pages was absolutely stunning. Mm. It's some of the finest example of comic art ever. The way he changes the panel structure to make them small, then bigger, then bigger still. And just the way he paces the drama in his artwork... I do wonder what he thought of Lee writing the dialogue for all of this. Because it, it is Stan Lee's dialogue that, that does the whole, this weight, it is heavy, <laughs> I must never give in. It's Stan's dialogue that's doing all of that. Mm. But the artwork carries the story along on its own. Well, you don't need the dialogue to tell you it's heavy. It looks pretty heavy. Yeah, Ditko does an exceptionally good job of showing that what he's doing here, his hard work. Mm. And just the the splash page on page five is absolutely stunning. And I love as well the little subtle touch that the water droplets are getting bigger and bigger as the pages go on, as the crack in the roof gets bigger. They start off as little things. And I love the symbolic thing. They're hitting him on the head. Yeah. So they're pushing him down as well. Water pressure is quite heavy. So you've got all these things that come together. It's It's glorious. I, I will not have a word said against it. I'm not saying it's bad, it's good. I've it? never said you did. But given that you were being deliberately obstreperous about page <laughs> one, I was I was sharpening my knives. <laughs> In preparation. In preparation, fortunately, I didn't need them. Pages six through nine, an absolutely exhausted Spider-Man allows himself to be carried away by the water that has built up from the droplets to a steady flow to a torrent over the last few pages. Ditko's water looks like it's alive as it sweeps Spider-Man away. But as we know from the opening page, there are still henchmen waiting for him. Again, Ditko's body language conveys how tired Spider-Man is as he refuses to let these men stand between him and his only living relative. I've got to say, though, even as a kid, I didn't understand how letting himself get beat up would help him recover, especially that seems to make him more punchy to the point where he doesn't even remember beating the henchman's lights out. But the panels on page 10 where we see just Spider-Man stood there punching and punching and punching and then it suddenly pulls back and everyone's out cold is well done. And it's very symbolic of how exhausted he is that he haven't even noticed that he's punched all the lights out. Maybe, maybe he get, lets himself get punched <coughs> so that he, he works himself into a frenzy. Possibly. Uh, but it, it says here... I let myself be punched to give me time to recover. And you're like, does that work then, really? Well, maybe it's just the dialogue messing it up a bit then. You think? Yeah. It's entirely possible. Cause, you know. See, maybe the art's just trying to say, like, ah, we'll beat you up. Oh, come on. Well, he, he does actually say that. He does actually say in the dialogue, what, what's the matter with me? Doesn't matter. What if they are arrested? They're just a gang of mangy crooks. I'm Spider-Man. And that's when he starts beating the cack out of them. Mm. So he gets his moment again. He has another one of those hero resolve moments. Ditko's use of shading on page 11. As Spider-Man emerges from the tunnels, is absolutely exquisite. 
Ditko would end a lot of issues with Spider-Man walking alone into the darkness with the light and the darkness playing off each other beautifully and cementing in my head that Spider-Man was a crime noir superhero strip long before Frank Miller got his hands on Daredevil. To have this scene in the middle of an issue was surprising, but appropriate, given the given the storyline. I presume as well that's where you would cut it in half in a British reprint. Yeah. Although when we were reprinting these, we were getting a full 20-page story every week in Spider-Man Comics Weekly. Pages 12 through 13, Spider-Man shows he's smart here in more ways than one. Yes, he's managed to get the serum to Kirk Connors, but he manages to switch the blood sample to test it on his own blood, as it's his blood given to a, given in a transfusion to May Parker when she was ill that has caused this problem. But here is the smart thing. He never tells Kurt who the serum's for, and thus not jeopardising his secret identity, because mm. presumably Kurt Connors is smart enough to put that all together. Unlike Hal Jordan, I'm good friends with Green Lantern. <laughs> Peter doesn't make that mistake. Granted, page 14... It would probably raise a few eyebrows, you know, Spider-Man showing up with an antidote for an old woman who means nothing to him. But it's not like Peter Parker could show up with it. Yeah. And I think we have established at this point that Spider-Man knows Peter through the fact that he takes photos of him for the Daily Bugle. So it isn't much of a stretch. Seeing Kurt Connors was also another nice nod to continuity. You don't need to know that Kurt feels like he owes Spider-Man for curing him of being the lizard back in issue 6, but it does add depth to the storyline. Page 14 was where it gets a little bit morally dubious. Peter fakes a few news photos to make some money. Mm. He has done this before with the Sandman in issue 4, and whilst it's morally questionable, he isn't actually faking the events. This did happen, as he shows them, just not when he took the photos. So is that wrong? Well, after what he's just been through, we, we can let it slide. And he does need money for the medical bills. Yeah. So And his costume still work, if you think about it. Yeah, so it all fits in. Although, many years later, Peter would be fired by Jonah for breaching journalistic ethics for doing this very thing. Yeah. You read that one? There's the reason. Yeah. yeah, he gets fired by from the Daily Bugle for faking a photo. Yeah. And Jonah... He does it to help Jonah, but Jonah dobs him in, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Because it's a breach of ethics. So I don't think Jonah Jameson would be uh, approving of this. Oh, well, he won't find out. He won't find out yet. He may find out in a while. Page 15. Stan manages to get some humour into what is really a rather heavy issue by having Betty Brandt ask if Jonah is okay because he's smiling. Yeah. Again, this is a callback to Daily Bugle employees thinking Jonah looks worse when he smiles than when he's grumpy. <laughs> he does look pretty creepy. I do, well, I do love that Ditko does draw as looking really like, yeah. oh dear me. He does look a bit uh, satanic, doesn't he? <laughs> it's also nice to see some supporting cast members as the nature of this particular issue means we never get to see Peter in school this month. On this note, Betty Brandt, then Peter's girlfriend, is horrified by how beaten up he is. Peter brushes it off. But I did like how, in Betty's head, when she has a little, 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 little flashback moment to her brother being killed in issue 10, it replaces her brother's Bennett Brandt with Peter. Mm. I thought that was a really nice little visual touch. A good example of continuity adding to a story instead of being a crutch, but also playing into the ongoing narrative. Peter and Betty, as a couple, wouldn't last much longer after this. Did we split up before Ditko left the book? Page 18 was also really nice to see. For the first time, 
Peter plays hardball with Jonah and gets a substantial paycheck for his work because this time Peter needs a hell of a lot of money to pay May's medical bills. I think this may be the first time we were seeing that Peter was treating this as a job rather than just a lark to make some extra money. I like his yellow jacket. Yellow jacket! (laughs) Hey! I don't think that was intentional. Probably not. Uh, The ending is typically Spider-Man. I did like that the Doctor... Not that one. Checking on Peter because he was concerned by how he looked and diagnosing with nervous exhaustion. Although it's exceptionally lucky that Peter took his Spider-Man costume off. Yeah. Oh, quick check up. By the way, he's not covered on your insurance. That'll be uh, dollars. I got that he did this for him just because he was concerned. Not every single doctor, if ER is to be believed, not every single doctor just runs a credit check before they will even look at you. And all he, let's be honest, all he really does here is just give him a once-over and listens to him and goes, you're exhausted, you need to go home and go to bed, dude. Alright, so that's at least $25 then. Besides, it's science fiction. Okay. <laughs> Aunt May awakens, but all is still not sweetness and light, because she is still weak able only to acknowledge that Peter's there before he has to leave. There are no miraculous endings where May is suddenly okay. The final four panels... It was an actor all along. It was an actress all along. That would be awful. (laughs) What a stupid idea that is. No one would ever be dumb enough to do that, would they? No. No. The final four panels, as the Doctor closes the blinds in May's room and we can see Peter hobbling away outside perfectly encapsulate just what it was about Spider-Man that I loved as a kid. Yes, he's won. Yes, he stood up to Jonah, but he's taken a hell of a beating and the ending is in no way celebratory. Its ambiguity is part of the reason that it's so memorable. The blinds finally close, leaving May's room in darkness, and Peter Parker still a man who walks alone. There isn't a great deal that I have to say about this one. It's one of the best issues of Spider-Man ever. Not just the Silver Age, with a story that includes themes such as family, determination, and how even with the metaphorical weight of the world pushing against you, you simply push back. Lee's script manages to be very well done, and Ditko's art is sublime. Silly. (laughs) What did you think of that one, Michael? I really liked it. See? Dicko was genius, dude. I will be honest, though, there might be a little bit of me liking it to do with me not liking other ones and this not being like other ones. Um, well, see, I don't, I don't know how much early Spider-Man you've read, to be honest with you, but I, I honestly don't understand people who don't like Lee Dicko Spider-Man. I'll be honest, I prefer, <laughs> I prefer Lee Romita. <clears throat> well, Romita made it slicker. But for me, this is the core of the character. Mm. This, this first 38 issues that Lee did with Steve Ditko essentially represent everything that's great about Spider-Man. But what's also great about it is that you can see the growth of the writer and the artist yeah. as it goes along and how they improved immeasurably just over the course of these 38 issues. Neither man would produce Spider-Man stories or Ditko would never produce a Spider-Man story again after he left and arguably Ditko challenged Lee more than anyone else did I mean that's not to say we don't love the Ramita stuff because we do but there's just something about Lee Ditko Spider-Man that is just utterly magnificent anyway 
Getting back to episode one of this retrospective, and again, issuing the caveat that this was in no way extensive, we wanted to know the answers to three questions. What was the same? What was different? And which held up the best? What did you think of those three, Michael? Um, what was the same? Compared to modern? No, no. Silver Age, Marvel uh, vs. Right. DC. We're not looking at modern comics at all. Uh, they were all just as silly and just as serious at the same time. They all managed to walk that fine line, didn't they? Between, yeah. this is a little bit daft, and actually this is really quite gripping. And more so with the DC stuff, mm. I'm going to have to say. There was there was very little silly in this issue of Spider-Man. Yeah. There was very little silly in the issue of Thor that we covered. There was, there was very little silly. Um, I think Marvel were more serious than DC at this time. Even though they had elements of humour in their stories. Yeah. But... Yeah, the Flash and the Green Lantern, which arguably were the best of the DC stuff that we've covered, they were straightforward science fiction stories with very little humour. Yeah. There was nothing wrong with them, and they were perfectly entertaining, but they were serious stories. Mm. The Superman and Batman, the Superman story, you could argue, was a little strange, a little odd, a little silly. Yeah. Despite not liking that word. (laughs) But there was a subtext to the Superman story that wasn't there in the Batman and the Supergirl stories. Yeah. So even when Superman did get a little bit, yes, we could do some dickery out of this, there was an undercurrent to the story that made it hold up. Mm-hmm. So in those, in that case, there was a similarity. The difference, I think, was the Marvel way of doing it. Marvel very quickly got rid of two stories per issue. Yeah. Within, I think it's three or four issues of Spider-Man, they're doing full 22-page stories. And those 22-page stories are building the blocks of what will become the Marvel Universe. Like we said, this issue refers to something that happened 20-odd issues earlier, which refers to something that happened all the way back in Amazing Fantasy 15 Mm. with Uncle Ben's death. The DC stories didn't really do that. We did get a little bit of a flashback to a previous streaky story in the Supergirl issue, but it didn't tell us when that happened, did it? Yeah. There was no footnote. So difference-wise, Marvel was building a mythology, building a continuity. And Marvel had humour in the stories. Mm. Marvel poked fun at how ridiculous some of this stuff could be. Which held up best? Well, I don't really know. What do you think? Which one do you think held up the best? Um. Viewed from the cold light of 2013. Well, that's difficult, because the, the Flash and the Green Lantern ones held up the best, but the Batman and the Superman ones didn't, whereas I think all of Marvel's held up and they're pretty the same as they are today. So ultimately we're going to have to say Marvel held up the best then, aren't we? Marvel haven't changed much. I would argue Marvel's not Marvel's See, not DC, as melodramatic now. No, but DC's the polar opposite of what it used to be. Yes, that's, that's certainly true. DC's completely different now. The DC Universe now is actually quite a bleak and unappetising place to want to live, isn't it? Which is what Infinite Crisis was about changing, even though it was exactly the same as what it wanted to change. Whereas the Marvel Universe is still a relatively decent place to live. Yeah. Let's be honest, you wouldn't want to live in the current DC Universe. Oh no. Michael Bailey said it on when we covered Infinite Crisis, because of how many... 
earth-shattering events happen in the DC universe, are you surprised that everyone hasn't killed themselves yet? No one's moved over to Earth Z, <laughs> yeah. where nothing interesting happens. Uh, for me, the similarities were in terms of character. Both companies concentrated on superheroes, largely because of the stringent guidelines of the comics code. As the 60s turned into the 70s, the code would relax its guidelines and both companies would experiment with more mature themes and more explicit horror storylines. The approach taken by the big two here, though, was quite different. The Marvel heroes all seemed to have personality foibles, characteristics not present in the DC heroes, although certainly in the early days of the Silver Age, DC stories held up a little bit better. But Marvel added more depth... The continuity between other stories was groundbreaking and this made the readers pay attention and, I'm sure, also helped sales. Whilst the adherence to continuity would become a hindrance for both companies in the future, in none of the stories we've covered for this mini-season has the backstory been a problem. Each issue was good enough on its own to bring you up to speed. As to which is best? Well, this is purely subjective. Both companies' output did what they set out to do. Entertain. How they did it may have been different. One of the reasons for covering this era of comics was to look at the common misconception that all the comics in this era are in some way juvenile, stupid, or just plain embarrassing. And whilst I can't claim that we've covered a lot of the cream of the crop in this rather short season, I think that just by picking a random assortment of issues, we've shown that by and large this wasn't the case. Only the Batman and Supergirl material could really be considered true juvenalia. And by that I mean there was very little for the older readers to sink their teeth into. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. Kids need something to read as well. And the stories were still imaginative and colourful. The Flash and Green Lantern stories were more sophisticated and highly entertaining for the times in which they were created. And the Superman story featured subtext in the form of a thematic undercurrent that any adult who read it could probably relate to. Again, quite sophisticated for the time that it was written. A lot of the super dickery stuff seems to come from taking the covers completely out of context. And yes, it's quite easy to take the piss out of anything if you remove the context. The Marvel stuff was a little better in terms of sophistication and depth, but even though the issue of the Avengers was quite weak, and the Silver Surfer could be quite overbearing in large doses. In the final analysis, I'm not saying that this era is completely undeserving of its reputation, but I think to somehow imply that all comics in the Silver Age are stupid is to be ignorant of the era, the context, the audience, and the rules. There are some dark themes in some of these stories, themes of alienation and ageing, but it's tempered with heroism and excitement and sometimes outright fun. I'm not saying there isn't a silly aspect to the Silver Age, far from it, but there are some excellent comics here as well. Stories with depth and meaning, stories that resonate, stories that laid the foundations of what is still being built today. There was charm and drama, excitement and adventure, and sometimes just good old-fashioned fun. Our post-millennial entertainment seems to have forgotten words like fun and all ages, neither of which translate into childish. We hope that in this very brief little look at the Silver Age of comics, we've shown that there is silver in them the hills, instead of gold. It's very good. Do you like that? That is good. I thought so. Of course, lovely listener, what you really want to know is which one wins this week. Because everybody loves that. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, for me, it was quite a difficult choice. Was it? You'd think that it wouldn't be, but it actually was. The Supergirl story was fun for what it was. 
it wasn't bad and for its target age group and judged on that criteria it's, it wasn't a failure even though as a kid that kind of thing wasn't to my tastes mm. the Superman story however despite its trappings had a pretty decent theme and that worked on two levels something Jerry Siegel seems to have excelled at however the Spider-Man story is a stone cold classic the depth of the storytelling, the feeling that this was a continual narrative, and the sheer power of the art combined to create a comics masterpiece. And to be fair, although not like for like, the Superman story was reprinted in a Superman annual around the time that Amazing Spider-Man annual number one came out. So they were both on the stands around the same time. There's no doubt, though, that whilst DC made the Silver Age happen, Marvel forced them to up their game as the 60s came to an end. Marvel may have dominated the latter half of the decade, but as the 70s came hovering into view, comics would become even darker and more nihilistic, discarding colourful fun and outlandish imaginings for dead girlfriends, drug-addicted sidekicks, and constant changes to characters to keep them relevant. However, for a lot of comics readers, the Silver Age is still the definitive version of many classic characters. And I can honestly see their point of view. What do you think? What wins this week? Yes. Marvel. Why? It, it was better. Just it, that. It I, I, was. Could, I could see what DC were doing with the silliness, but it dragged it down. Right. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, Marvel forced DC to grow up. But arguably, you're at a point now where DC have taken that a little bit too far. Well, I don't think they should have done that anyway, because they were better to start off with. They went wrong somewhere trying to be too silly. Because what they were doing with the Green Lantern and Flash was good for all ages. Yeah. Well, see, maybe we should look at Green Lantern in the late 60s. Yeah. Or maybe we should follow this up with a 70s show. Yeah. Where we do the same thing, four weeks, four random comics. The Bronze Age. Yeah, but I'd be more inclined if we did that to move away from superheroes and look yeah. at because the seventies were quite a really good era for the diversity of books that were being published. As I said, the comics code was being a lot more lax, mm. so they were suddenly allowed to do Dracula and horror and weird Western tales and House of Mystery and Tomb of Dracula and Man Thing and Swamp Thing and all that stuff. Mm. along with the wackier stuff like Howard the Duck and what Jim Sterling was doing with Warlock and, and all of that. So it may be interesting to do something like this for the 70s yeah, and see what we think of the 70s. Okay, well, we hope you enjoyed that, lovely listeners. I did, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Mm. I thought that was really quite fun. Next time on our all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, it's the Christmas show. Luke Cage, issue 8, I think. Yeah. Is a Christmas issue. And, Christmas. Yeah. And Marvel team up. God, I think it's issue 117, a Christmas issue. Spider-Man meets the Watcher. It will be dropping, make a note in your diaries, on Christmas Eve, two whole days early. Mainly because I don't see the point of releasing a Christmas episode after Christmas. Yeah. And Thursday falls on December 26th. So that seems a bit stupid to me. But, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, we do spoil you, don't we? Lovely listener. Alright, so we'll be back next week to celebrate Christmas with you. That episode will again drop on Christmas Eve. So a little bit earlier than normal. But we'll be back to Thursday the following week when we will be doing our annual What We Got for Christmas 
chat and yeah. we'll probably do uh, a number of emails in we'd, that show as well we'd like to tease that episode but we don't know what we've got yet no so <laughs> that episode gets recorded and put up quite quickly we'll see you next week thank you for listening thank you for emailing thank you for just joining us yeah. on this little sojourn through the Silver Edge bye bye goodbye is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Andrew here. Hello. If you've got this far in the episode, this means that you're one of those people that listens right to the end. And I applaud you for that. I don't normally do it, but I applaud you for doing it. Anyway, there's some little outcakes outtakes at the end of this episode. There's another one. Yeah, but I'm not going to edit that because I can't be asked at this point. Um, For reasons very complicated and far too complicated to go into, we didn't actually record this episode when we normally record episodes. So we had to kind of squeeze it in and around what we were doing, which was quite busy. And in and around cats fighting, which seems to happen quite a lot recently. The practical upshot of this was we seem to receive more phone calls during this two hours that we recorded this episode than we did in the rest of the week combined. Throughout this episode, you will have occasionally heard a phone in the background. If you're anything like me, while I was editing it, you'll have thought, oh, the phone's ringing, and it will have confused the hell out of you. What you're about to hear are a few minor outtakes of me just getting more and more annoyed at the fact that these people don't seem to appreciate that we have a podcast to record. I know it's not their fault, and it's not like you can hang a do not disturb sign on the telephone, but it got more and more annoying, as you will hear as we go through. If you're one of those people who only listens to the show for the comic talk, you can turn off now. You're not going to miss anything. Honest. We won't talk about you behind your back or anything like that. Probably. 
If you're one of those people who likes the family dynamic part of the show, then you may find this a little bit funny. See you later. Bye bye. What? What now? Editing this one's going to be a bitch. I'm getting really bored tonight. Go get that. I want you to throw it out the wall. <laughs> oh, are you getting that? I'm not in. <laughs> These people have no appreciation of art. Are we making art? Yes. Can you turn it off? <laughs> Tell you what, put it outside. And I'll stop though so I can cut that out. We're busy. Call cannot be taken right now. What? Good. Glad you rushed for that then. I'd love to see your comics origin story on this little tale. <laughs> Do these people not know we have a show today? It's an 0800 number. We're chasing Oh, sorry, I thought you were in the kitchen. Hello? Yes? I'm very fine, thank you. I'm just in the middle of something. Is it important? Oh, well, that's, that's great. Well, go on. Uh, Andrew Leyland. Um, I think we're on orange, yes. Yes. Is what? Sorry, I, there's, there's a lot of noise behind you. I can't hear you. Um, it's calls to people. I don't know what you mean. I phone people. Go on. What do you mean? What what kind of what kind of calls do I make? Do I make crank calls to people? I find people in my address book and I phone them and I laugh at them. That's what I do. That's the kind of calls I make. in the middle of the night to wake them up. Uh, I, I, I normally phone people when I'm awake. <laughs> uh, I normally use it for Facebooking people and sending text messages primarily. Uh, I would not no, without looking at my statement. So I don't know off the top of my head. That's very good. Do, do you want to write that to me and send it to me? Uh, yeah, but I don't want you to actually do it now. I want to be able to read through it. Is there any chance you can send that to me so I can have a look at it? 
that's a seat. No, I don't want to make the decision on the phone. I would like to have a look through it and compare it to what I've already on. You see what I mean? Uh, yes. That's the one. Yeah, at Blue Yonder. B L U E Y O N D E R. .co.uk That will be excellent. Thank you very much for your help. Alright then. Thank you. Bye bye. What kind of calls do I make? Calls on my phone! What do you mean what kind of calls? Do you think, do I make crank calls to people? Do I phone them and say, what are you wearing? Do I phone children and go, do you want some pies, little girl? Hi. And then my favourite, my favourite one. What kind of skills are you driving? And my favourite one. When do you make these calls? When I'm awake. I don't phone people when I'm asleep, do I, you piggy numpty? What was it for? He's from EE. He's trying to get me a better package. Something like £26.50. <laughs> this, 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 and this. And I'm like, I can barely hear him. You tied into it for two years. Well, I thought so, but anyway, whatever. But he's from EE, so he should know that. So why did he phone you and ask you what network you were on? Is, are you on EE or Orange? And I'm an Orange, aren't I? I don't it's know. It's all EE now. It was well, T-Mobile or Orange, but it's... That's what he said. Are you on T-Mobile or Orange? And I said I'm on Orange. Whatever. Can we carry on with the show? That's a pre-credit sequence. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, they wouldn't be able to hear him. Yeah, but the bit... They don't need to hear him. They can, we were laughing at you. Oh, what, 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 what kind of... Crank call. Yeah, well, what, what kind of calls do you make? What do you mean, what kind of call? I make crank calls. I thought it was such a stupid question. Did he laugh? Yeah, he thought it was hysterically funny. <laughs> He's probably not used to people taking the piss out of him, is he? <laughs> anyway. He's probably not used to people answering. That's that's also true.